When you're out on a stroll over the permafrost of Greenland or northern Canada, you might want to listen carefully for the humming of the Kalupalik. She snatches disobedient children from the shoreline or through cracks in the ice, dragging them down to live with her in the frozen sea. As the children age, she grows younger and younger, so it's probably a good idea to listen to your parents, or at least learn to hold your breath for a very long time. Welcome to Bedtime Stories for the End of the World, where we ask some of the UK's most excellent poets to choose a myth, a folktale, or a fairy story that they want to preserve for future generations, saving it from rising waters or nuclear disaster, or from our collective capacity to forget. We want to know what stories they want to leave behind for whatever civilizations or smoking remains come next. They've rewritten and reworked these stories, they've unpacked them and they've shaken them until something goes crack and it's my pleasure to bring you the results. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny, taking a shortcut through the woods to bring food to my elderly grandmother. Joining me this week to retrieve old women from the stomachs of wolves are Leonardo Bois, Nick Garrard and Miriam Nash. Leonardo Bois is an Argentinian poet, journalist and educator and a fellow of the Complete Works Poetry Scheme. He is the author of two collections in Spanish, and his English work has been featured in outlets such as the Rialto, Magma Poetry, and Litro. Leo, hi. Hi, hello. <laughs> so, what story have you got for us today? So, I decided to go um, with this uh, myth uh, of Pombero. Pombero is a, is a sort of spirit uh, that lives uh, in Paraguay, in Brazil, and Argentina. And, and it's a myth that I was fascinated since I was a, a little child because he's, a, he's a, a very mysterious figure. I wanted to sort of explore this, this myth. Yeah. Great. Go on ahead. Pombero, Señor de la Noche, Lord of the Night, a door shut, a machete dropped. You woke her up with strange noises. Drops of sweat covered her body. A hammock nestled her, legs dangling. Some say you stole her barefoot that night, took her deep in the selva. Hypnotist gaze, your hairy face and crowned. They say you forced her. She didn't scream enough. You left her abandoned under a knotted sabre tree. They murmur of tainted sperm, her seven children ugly as you. They smell alike. Spotted fruit for black bees to feed on. Science of half moons, their monstrous hands. Lascivious nightjar, your elusive whistle echoes all that dies in the forest. A myth no one dares to speak of. Your forbidden name. Peril hides in every letter. A sudden call. Their pit. Believers prefer to name you quietly, but never, nunca, at night. Will you turn transparent, Pomero? You him in with your obscene dance. He walked alone, knowing something lurked behind orchid-infested yatai trees. They didn't see him as he pleaded. No witness around. 
you opened him, then escaped into the form of a golden cyclist, slumped on dried salty mud, blooming pink lapacho covered in honeyed milk on his arse, the mark of an ambush he couldn't forget. As he returned among buttress roots, his swollen eyes shut by a livid sun. As he tasted Peter West's saliva, lust came to him, a burning hymned on an altar fire. Instead of coins, they leave you rum, fresh tobacco, molasses for you to snatch, burning incense tapers for protection, a bad harvest beckons. Drink it all, carai fiere, you are the poor farmer's saint. Instead of eyes, amber stones gleam. You kneel down, kiss the ground. Pombero, with just one stroke, you make them go mad. They lose all they have. Their gods, their demons. Your hairy palm unlocks the forest door. Headless animals, babies upside down, hanged from trees. Stolen novias in parts. Greening trophies you dangle around for everyone to see. Para que todos vean. They say you are lord of a silver mountain. That somewhere inland, in the woods, rises a summit of pure silver. The plata. They say you are known to be generous that you would gladly give me part of your treasure. A good win, goodwill sign. A talisman, some feathers, a silver tongue. Now that night has fallen, this Sycorax forest of yours grows ears. You are back to bewitch them with your dog whistle your echo of an echo. Beware of scattered semen. It pollinates the jungle. Seeds will spread, strangle the shallow floor until all is spoiled. Chopumbes gain. You could name all the things inside yourself a universe going backwards for a deathless ritual. You'll promise to protect all passerine birds that land on your cracked hand. They'll be good to you, Pombero, to your tender outline if they follow you around. You'll be named. They now say you roam the forest to save us, our thicket, El Monte. You will ambush the insatiable spoilers, 
slaughter bird gutchers, fishermen, logos. If they can't see you, where is your heart? Where the wild force that guides you? Silva's eyes have opened. She woke me up. Bombero, come close to me. Strip me of skin, bones, precious stones as I invoke you, your unholy tale. Furtive figure, no shadow disappears but footsteps. Crushed wet leaves suffocate the poisonous dawn. Then a sudden knock at the door. There. So this is a story which has been with you since childhood. Are you drawn to it for the same reasons now as you were then? Probably not. When I was a child, I felt that Pombero was a very scary figure and, uh, and you know, he's a hairy, uh, small um, sort of creature, like rambling, you know, in the woods. And, uh, and later on, I realised that there are more things about him that are the more ambiguous, more um, interesting things. His relationship with nature, for instance, with the forest, the fact that he protects uh, rivers and mountains and, and birds. So there's, uh, there's, you know, this other side of Pombero. So, yeah, I was fascinated by, by those things and also by, you know, the, the way that he can be so violent against, especially women. Um, so my poem, I turned him violent, violent against men as well. So I, I'm sort of trying to make him more ambiguous. Uh, and, yeah. and of course, there's a very interesting relationship to things like violence and Pombero's relationship with the body and like the natural being, because while at the same time being very anchored in bodily realities and the realities of nature. They seem very porous with one another. There's a lot of interchange there. He, he also seems like a very elusive character. Yeah, uh, Pombero is, is uh, basically the king of disguises and, and can turn easily into a bird or a wild animal. Um, his main function seems to be that of taking care of the forest and wild animals. He gets angry if a hunter kills more than needed and can trick the culpable by making him get lost in the forest or sometimes worse. In some areas of Paraguay, people believe that it is unlucky to say his name aloud and to speak badly of him or to whistle late at night um, because all of these things can infuriate Pombero. Um, Although he can be a friend of farmers, he can turn extremely violent, especially against women. Um, and this is something I'm, I'm sort of exploring in the poem. There does seem to be in that myth some continuity between women's bodies and the natural landscape, and that's they're sort of equated in that they are the thing over which Pombero claims this sort of violent dominion, sometimes protective, sometimes malicious. And he is unusual in sort of fertility figures in that way to use violence so much. Exactly, yes. And there is also this aspect of um, a syncretism um, uh, of religion um, because people pray to him and, and, and he goes after unbaptized um, uh, mothers um, with children, uh, especially single mothers. So there's all these really um, you know, disturbing aspects of him 
that I, I just uh, think they are really interesting in terms of like sort of how they play out many sort of notions of national identities and gender violence and and Latin American machismo and but also environmental like anxieties and and the surreal and um, sexual aspects of nature. So all these themes I think are quite important to me because uh, they tap on all these. Uh, issues related to South America. And let's remember that Pombero is, is a figure that is well known in these regions, you know, in Paraguay, in Brazil and Argentina, but there are similar versions of Pombero in other parts of South America, in Chile, in Colombia, similar uh, sort of creatures that sort of live in the forest, that protect nature, that sometimes, you know, they go after women. I just found it really strange and, and and you know that's why i just went and did, and, and did some research on 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 him um but basically there's not much written about pombero this is a myth that comes from oral traditions and that's another really interesting thing for me by doing this podcast it's almost like we are naming naming him we're sort of um, summoning him yeah <laughs> telling <it. laughs> him you know or telling people about his story so in a way we're sort of replicating the the, the, the story so yes, no, it's, it's definitely a fascinating uh, myth. There's interesting cultural fusion there because Pombero in his sort of later iterations becomes something to police the bounds of Christian morality, right? There is this sort of pagan figure which stalks the edges and the peripheries of centred Christian culture, but he's the thing that kind of keeping it intact. He's the person punishing unbaptised mothers and people who infringe on the correct relationship with nature in some kind in some kind of way and there is that sort of tension there in your poem yeah very much so and also i, th- I think that there is this aspect uh, of pombero being sort of you know you can be as a, as a farmer for instance you can be a friend of pombero if you treat him well if you leave tobacco or rum outside your door but he can be your enemy if you treat him badly, if you speak about him at night or if you whistle. Um, and he can just make you go mad, for instance, or they, he can trick you into kind of doing different things. He can trick you into kind of, you know, get, getting lost in the forest. So there are all these really fascinating um, aspects of, of him. Um, I have to say that, that people in some areas, especially in Paraguay and Brazil, they do really still believe of Pombero and 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 not as a myth. I mean, some people claim they saw him walking around in the forest and and the, you know, whistling as as a bird or you know imitating the noises of different animals or the, the you know the river or so um, you know people do believe of you know Pombero. When I wrote this poem, I just I was thinking about those people who are actually for for them Pombero is actually real and you know very much part of their daily life, um, a protector of, you know, their daily sort of, um, yeah, life. So even naming Pombero as a myth really transforms the relationship uh, between the story and truth. There is something incredibly political almost about the way in which naming something as a myth or not takes ownership over the relationship between the story and truth, you know, to, to call, I don't know, Biblical stories, mythological or historical or truthful, already sets up the reader's expectations in such a transformative way. So do you think that the legend of Pombero is, is, is in any way true? That's a difficult question. I, I, uh, sometimes I do believe that it's true. 
um, especially, I mean, as I mentioned before, this syncretism aspect of his um, the, this myth, I just found it really um, interesting because, as you know, you know, when South America or Latin America was discovered by the Spaniards, they brought Catholicism, but there were already uh, cultures there with their own religions and their, their own myths, uh, and Pombero seems to fuse these two worlds. So that's why people pray to him, they uh, leave uh, candles, um, they do things that normally you associate with uh, sort of a church going. So I, I love the way that, you know, people try to make sense of, of their world by by kind of looking, you know, um, up to, to, to Pombero in a way, although he can be so um, nasty to them as well. If, yeah, the, the figure um, visually is quite um, scary. I mean, he's just um, hairy and, and ugly, and, and just yeah, the, the whole the whole thing I just found fascinating. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Next up, we have Nick Garrard. Nick is a teacher and a writer and editor of Ghostland Zine. His work has appeared in 3AM magazine, The Literary Review and many others, and he's working on his first collection. Hello, Nick. Hello. So what myth have you chosen? I have chosen to retell Baucis and Philemon from Ovid's Metamorphoses. That is the story of an old couple who take in two travellers and offer them a meal and comfort and so on. And um, it turns out that the two travellers are gods in disguise and they are rewarded by first being allowed to watch the local town destroyed by water um, and later to be transformed into trees. Wonderful. Can't wait. Okay, so my um, poem is written as a series of poems with some titles to go with them. This is the invocation. It's called Make Nothing Happen. I speak of a country the gods first made, a valley's soft V where they bent back rock. Each stone they gave a voice every surface hidden watch. I speak of lives lived under yoke of the sun, homes carved in the creases of the land, men who fed their mouths from the furnace of the earth. I speak of those pushed to the world's brittle edge, elderly, infirm, the hands that never took but bent instead in knuckle-splitting graft, the seeds they sowed and prayed to see return. The gods have grown old, their powers soft, they sleep like lizards in the afternoon haze. I speak of the days when they armed themselves with spite, spun flesh like silk, unfixed fresh limbs. I speak of their anger. I speak of their rage. I speak of their shadow like a cool upon the world, rich with nothing. These are hard days, hours lean and sharp as shivs. Boggart wind comes scratching like a locked-out dog, rattling the windows in their brittle frames. Each day I wake to lamplight, the sun's insinuations, boots found and bound in a silent pool. Water for the washing bowl, wood for the stove's black mouth, I feed them all. Time has made a joke of our bones, laughter folds the edges of our eyes. You sleep and seem as fresh as when we kissed in the corner of a stairwell. And now the land is peeling, cracked, we drank her sweet sap dry. I work my fingers there and think of worms our children caught, lifted, looping from the earth and split in two. 
Along the ridge, the breeze takes dirt and scatters it like salt across the valley's low red roofs. The path into town shows white and stark, marbled fat through an animal's flank. My love, I hear you singing at the hob. A boiled pan of skittering eggs, the table cleanly laid. The season's fruits were few this year and late. Xenia Beside the dying fire, twin travellers' staffs, branches trimmed from the same black bark, rough shoes parked in the shadow of the door, trail dust lingering in the ridges of the floor, thin stew frothing in the cradle of the pot, strange hands stretching to a proffered cup, frail lovers looking eye to milky eye, a pale moon's trespass in the midday sky, a weight upon the room like a beaten drum, the words that never come, never come. An ecumenical matter. Perhaps when a god speaks you know, the same way some parents sense a death. Some absence which had not announced itself does now, like dreaming of gold and waking with empty pockets. Perhaps when gods gather up their things and leave, the door can't open quick enough. A vacant chair has never known such lack. That empty cup will never fill again. And should your old legs unfold themselves and lead you out along some valley's edge, perhaps a god is no longer an echo of a man, but everywhere and everything instead. The black shade of the clouds across the land. The air becoming thick with falling rain. The powers of gods are great indeed. Where stillness once slept, the rumble of a river grown fat, and where the land lay only water white and churning, froth like a mad dog's mouth. Where doors were drawn and windows shut, fresh splinters sent spinning in the evening air, as many glass shards as there were eyes in the world. Where men had built their houses high, tiles plucked like teeth, stones shaken from their seats, wild currents whistling in the throats of gutted halls. Where young brides blushed in their clean new veils, the water held and shook them in a final dance, lives snuffed out like thin white wick, bone and hair and dust. And when the waters calmed, they saw a wan sky purged of birds, the earth new fed with blood, a waterside as green as bays upon a table. Borsis took her husband's hand and felt the tenderness of bones beneath the paper skin, and neither of them wept. They do what they like. A strange gift, living quite so long, those idle years at the water's edge, softly unspooling like balls of golden thread. They grew alike in age, pruned and stooped by piling hours, heads bent ever more towards the ground. She saw it first, they say, the sprouting leaves like white stubble dappling her love's chin. Was it fear pursed her wrinkled lips? Were there words left for wishing as her heart was set with rings? We'll never know, although we live to tell. And where soft skin bunched into hard brown bark, did it buckle up and snap or take into the air like crows at the sounding of a farmer's gun? The ages only echo what was heard. Did their new shapes settle, quiet as a midnight snow, or surge and burn like red coals pressed against an open palm? Was it life leaked from their toes and wired them to the earth, 
Were they scared? Did it hurt? You and I shall never know until we do. Untitled High upon a hillside, twin trees intertwine, an oak and a linden, rooted among rocks and arches of stone, wind-strung, warm with white blossom, a path picks down to the lake below, green glass kissed with weeds, water speaks to water, no sound now but the circle songs of birds. So what was it that drew you to this story in the first place? Well, I've always loved the uh, collection, um, Metamorphoses, and I think a lot of the stories are quite well-known and they're also often stories that feel like they have a moral that you can follow where there's a punishment handed out. The transformation that's central to so many of the stories feels like it's deserved. And in this story, the thing that fascinates me, I think, is the sort of the cruelty of the flooding of the town and also just this this strangeness of the way it's set up so although I took a slightly more oblique approach to it and um, in the original version the reason that the two lovers become trees is that they say to the gods they, they, they're given a reward and they say um, we want to die together we want to go together when we die and so by some strange logic the gods decide that means they must want to turn into trees in some of the translations, it talks about them saying how much they love each other as the bark closes over their mouths. And I'm always struck by how strange that is as an image. Certainly if it's a reward, it sounds like one that they weren't expecting. So I suppose the kind of uncanniness of that really fascinates me. And I think it's also the, the clearest indication of what it feels like to be watched over by gods who can intervene at any time and sort of change the way you have been living, you know, that sense of paranoia. That, that sense of inter entirely being surveilled. And um, there is in the myth embedded this potential for, this potential for benevolence, this potential for them to be visited with all the fabulous bounty of the gods that we've seen and witnessed in the rest of the metamorphoses. But in the uncanniness and the, the unsettlingness of the image of them being rewarded by being turned into trees seems to really animate the internal tension of, of that bargain, of what what it takes for someone to have that benevolent power over you is also someone having an incredibly sinister level of power over mm. you, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And I like the fact that what the gods might see as a reward could be a completely alien concept. They're unreadable um, and for that reason, you know, I didn't want to describe them. I want to describe their impact, but not their appearance. Why is that? Because it loses something. I couldn't help but feel, you know, as I was writing it, I was also aware of things like Stalker, the Tarkovsky movie, you know, with the sort of alien presence that's never really explained. Or um, the film on Netflix just dropped of Jeff Vandermeer's authority, which is very similar. The sort of presence of an alien intelligence which acts in ways you don't really understand and, and I, I thought you know those are just developments of the same kind of impulse that's there in the, the original to sort of warn or um, discuss the, the potential role of arbitrary chaos in our lives to sort of give it a metaphorical role and so I wanted to continue in that line I just really like the slightly uncomfortable sinister aspect of the story when you talk about chaos it is sort of interesting that we find it more palatable almost or more comprehensible to to encapsulate what in fact could be just 
sheer bad luck, the chaos of the this kind of wild landscape that you point out, which suddenly capriciously floods mm. due to absolutely no reason at all. It's actually more comforting to posit an occasionally cruel intelligence mm. who is at at the helm, at the reins, rather than the terrifying fact that, you know, no one could be there. Absolutely. Yeah. So the... <laughs> I think the safe option to take is to think, you know, that um, this great pantheon of classical gods and myths are there to provide comfort and to think of them as being a sort of blanket. But I think if you imagine them as being much more potentially unreadable and wild and this sense that they may intervene at the most unexpected moment, I just find that it's probably truer of the the sort of neuroses that they might have been standing in for. Um and the way they might have been less interesting to depict in a certain way. Like, I, I realise I'm going against <laughs> great, great waves of classical culture in terms of, you know, there being lots of representations of these gods and them having sort of accepted visual signifiers so you could tell who and what they were. But I suppose my response to the myth is that I was drawn more to the dramatic moments and also to the human experience and what it would feel like to be visited by these people um, to have lived a life that's very isolated and suddenly to be part of a, an event that is inexplicable, dramatic, sudden, that really engages me. So tell me about the landscape, because something that struck me in your poem was how barren and hostile almost this this edgeland is and how hard one is one's forced to work in order to just eke out any kind of existence there. Why did you choose to go down that path? Well, I think when one thinks of classical myth, you often think of sort of Arcadian greenness and lush landscapes. But it's really essential for the story that you understand that this is a couple who have nothing and who are um, willing to give of that to strangers. But also that they are people who have been marginalised and pushed out of the lush places where people live well. Um, And because that whole side of the story is one that I have essentially excluded I think it was really necessary to emphasise this sense of, you know, a, a landscape that has been pummeled into shape and where it's very, very hard for them to get by. I think maybe there's the slight phantom there of an initial interest in making it a sort of um, climate change story. <laughs> but I abandoned that when I realised that really the human centre was what interested me. And there is that, again, the ambiguity of justice or restitution when it comes to the flooding of the town right because of the enormous discrepancy between the lifestyles of the people who live in abundance in the town and these people who are scratching out this bare existence on the hillside and it by the mere fact that they are the ones who survive Mm. there is a kind of cruel karmic logic in that yeah and i and i wondered whether you know there'd be any elements of survivor's guilt. The original goes on to talk about the fact that they're, um, the site where the trees have grown up become a sort of place of pilgrimage and that their home itself, this kind of beaten up shack, suddenly transforms just as the valley is suddenly flooded with water. The house transforms into a sort of beautiful gold marble temple. But <laughs> well, I just decided to exclude Yeah, but one, of course, that like they will absolutely never be able to experience. That's right, yeah. So why why would they be, you know, why would they be part of that dialogue? It speaks volumes about 
how and on whom the idea of justice in this story and in the kind of metamorphosis as a whole works. It, justice doesn't really attach to any one particular individual or any one particular act. It's more a sort of set of laws by which the universe writes itself and the fact that many people get ground on those on those wheels of history is sort of irrelevant. Yeah, yeah, I think that's very true. And I think the um, the way in which I approached it, so rather than writing a single continual um, poem with, with one metre and one form, but actually to sort of disrupt it and break it up and look at different aspects, reflects a similar kind of urge. So the comfort of reading an extended epic where you, you have a real feel for how the language is going to fall after a while. You have, you know, your... Um, recurring motifs, the wine dark sea, etc., etc. I really wanted the shape of the poem to reflect what I was also doing with the content, and so you know that sense of justice and that sense of retribution. Well, if you make that questionable, if you want that to be questionable, then it it kind of made sense for the form to be slightly uncomfortable in the same way. Thank you so much. Thank you. With me now is Miriam Nash, who is an award-winning poet, performer, workshop leader, and the author of the collection All the Prayers in the House, which earned her an Eric Gregory Award. Hello, Miriam. Hi, it's great to be here. Lovely to have you here. Now, I was wondering if you could tell us what story you've chosen. So I'm retelling uh, the Norse creation myth, um, and I'm telling it from a rather unusual point of view, which is from the point of view of the nine mothers of Heimdallr. These are nine women giants who raised the god Heimdallr. Usually the Norse creation myth is told from the point of view of the gods or with the gods at the centre. But at the beginning of uh, the Norse world, there were gods and giants and they lived together. And this story is told from the point of view of the giant characters. The nine mothers of Heimdallr. Who do you see in the flame-light child? Nine giants, the last giants. Who are the giants to you, child? You're my mother's, mother's nine. Who has fallen asleep in the corner? Gelp and grape, yes, those snores. Atlas pig stews almost ready, Aislers sharpening her sword. Look, and Yea's boots are steaming, Jan Saxa's grinding her gold teeth. Eir Gjafa's mind is in the future, past the cave mouth, that's her gift. Now is the hour for tales, child, rest your head on Ulfran's knee. Is it the giant's tale tonight? Yes, I, Imthra, will lead. This is your tale, god-giant child. A tale of giants, a tale of gods. In early time, in frost-fire time, we lived snore close, heart close. Before the realms, before the flames, before the gods or giants came, before the ice, before all names, there was a space. Open your mouth in an O, child, there's the gape before the word. No mouth mouthed a sound child, but that space was all the world. But oh, the gap hung heavy child, and ice crept round it like a north, 
and oh, the gap breathed quick child, and flame leapt from it like a south. And from the firelands, sparks spun up like thoughts into the nothing place. And from the icelands, clouds of mist moved out across that shadow space. And where frost fell into the flames, in the heart place of the gape, Oh, in that meeting melt where smoke swam into mist, Emir was made. Emir was frost, was wind, was flame. Emir was form, was voice, was name. Emir, the giant, the first, became our mother-father. What was Emir? A giant child. Bigger than you, two times our height. Mother and father, both and all. Emir breathes as I speak tonight. Emir slept and their armpit sweat ran river thick into the ice. And where that frost and heart heat met, we giants grew. How did you grow? The way you grew, the memory melting like the ice. Were you ever small? We can't recall. We've always looked like giants to us. We lay among the snow embers, ice islands melting in the light. We heard the rush of river seas and fishes rustling into life. And in one glacier, a hair was loosening, a golden twist. And when Emir blew on the ice, it melted and we saw a face. Emir breathed and the being rose and shook the water from his hair and lifted out his arms and legs. How long had he been frozen there? How long, child, we'll never know. We named him Buri, Brother Ice. One head below the rest of us, he slept and hunted by our side. So the first family was found in gaping lands of ice and flame. We giants lived, snore close, heart close, till Odin came. His pig stew for the next part, child, blood that heals and divides. Spear the meat on Aesla's sword and nestle here at Imthra's side. Odin, son of Buri's son, smallest of our giant brothers, son of our lost sister, Bestler, split our world and made us mothers. Odin said he was a god. Odin said the gods were old. Older than Emir or giants, older than the ice fire world. What is a god? A name, child, a name that grew and gathered height. Who made the gods? They made themselves with stories whispered in the night. Count the tall ones, count the sweatborns, Odin whispered to his brothers. See how many giants surround us all these terrifying mothers. You and I are sons of Buri, who was frozen in the frost. He who lived before Emir in the Icelands we have lost. In the darkness, by the embers, Odin and his brothers crept. Soft, their small feet crossed the iceway to the place where Emir slept. Odin with his creeping fingers, Odin with his shadow breath, swung his ice axe high above him, brought it down on Ymir's chest. O yawning space, 
all-nothing place that opened when Emir was cut. Emir was flung into the gape, into the blood. Emir, our frost, our wind, our flame. Emir, our voice, our form, our name. Emir, our mother, father, slain by Odin, God. And in the heart place of the cut where flesh fell into blood, child. Oh, in that churning river wound, Emir became a world. Emir's skull is the heaven's child. Emir's bones are the mountains now. The matted trees are Emir's hair. Their brain hangs in the clouds. Emir's limbs are the earth child. Their fingers fan to make the fjords. The rivers run with Emir's blood. And Emir's breath is yours. Then Odin and his brother gods built palaces from Ymir's thoughts, and looking down on Ymir's realms, they said the world was made by gods. What happened to the giants, Imthra, when Ymir's heart was split in two? How did the giants end up here? Mothers, how did I come to you? We woke in flood, we woke in blood, we saw Emir fall in the wound, and through the blood and through the flood we swam and carried you. Gelp carried you through blood, Grape carried you through blood, and Atla carried you through blood, and Aisler carried you. Angyea carried you through blood, Jan Saxa carried you through blood, Eir Gjafa carried you through blood, and Ulfren carried you. And child, I carried you through blood, your tiny body close to mine. We bore you in our giant arms, and so became your mother's nine. But we lost sisters in the flood, and we lost children in the flood. We lost all others in the flood. Our god brothers were lost to us. Am I a giant or a god? Child, you're a giant to us. Who was my father? Odin, child. God or giant, you have a choice. I don't want to be a god. I don't want to be a half. Emir was mother, father, child. Both might be your path. Who do you see in the flamelight, child? You, my mothers, mothers nine. Yes, we're your giant mothers, we'll be yours for all of time. Gelp and Grape have woken now, they will hunt for us tonight. Atlas stew is in our bellies, Aisla's sword is sharp and bright. Jan Sax is grinding her gold teeth, Angyea's boots are warm and dry. Ergyafa won't say what she sees with her future-seeing eye. We are all we have, child. Rest your head on Ulfren's knee. Dream of Icelands and of flame. Sleep, snore close, heart close to me. Myth and fairy tale seems to be quite a strong theme in a lot of your work. So I'm interested in why you chose, in particular, an origin story because there seems to be something quite compelling about refiguring and reframing an origin story in particular in the way that it lays claim to a to a certain kind of 
picture of how our world is in reality, in contemporary reality, even if it's not necessarily the world of the Norse gods. I was told this story when I was a child, so it was it was very vivid to me in the way that stories that we're told when we're young can be. Uh, this creation story with the kind of ice and the fire, those images were, were strong in my mind. Uh, and I knew I wanted to use this opportunity to explore some Norse mythology a bit further. Um, and I discovered these characters, the nine mothers of Heimdallr, or he's sometimes called Heimdall, anglicised. Uh, and these nine mothers are not talked about very much, uh, at least in the existing literature that we have, but they're all named uh, and that we know that they were giant characters, although sometimes they're, they're pictured uh, a bit differently. But I like to think of them as these nine giants uh, and I like to think of them as, uh, you know, how can a child have nine mothers? Uh, I like to think of them as... Uh, nine women who ended up raising this child. Uh, and so I thought I might be telling their story and, and speaking about that, how that happened. Um, but in fact, rather than inventing new things, I kept coming back to this story that was vivid in my mind. And I thought, actually, uh, you know, we we know that the the first giant, Emir was destroyed by Odin to become the world. And what about the giants? And what if these nine giants and and their child Heimdallr uh, were washed up? Uh, and as far as they knew, they were the only surviving giants um, after this destruction of their world and the creation of a new one. And so, yeah, I started to explore that and to want to tell the the story from what might be their point of view. You play on this interesting tension between. Uh, the violence of creation as well because there is something in uh, usual conceptions of what it is to be this pastoral prelapsarian paradise um, before the sort of corruption of civilization but especially in Norse mythology and in the way that you bring those themes out in your work this is quite a violent process there there really is no pure pre-civilizational era to which we can return it's always been this kind of wrangling between like creative and destructive forces and there is something very um very poignant about the idea of uh, these people making a life for themselves on what they know is you know the literal bodily fragments of a person just like themselves yeah and i think the creation of one world as we know it in, through our history is always the destruction of another and often, well, usually that's a very violent destruction. Uh, so that was interesting to explore. I mean, that really is at the heart of this story, whoever's point of view you tell it from. There is this moment, there is this time where the giants and gods are living together and you know, Odin himself is part giant and most of the gods... Uh, are part giant and the gods remain important but they're kind of sidelined and they're these sort of dangerous enemy characters seen from the gods point of view um, so that was really interesting yeah to come back to that moment of destruction and that moment of the gods marking themselves out as different from the giants and I like the idea that that you know that they the gods felt antagonistic to the giants because they were too big 
you know, they were bigger than them and they were afraid of them and thinking about the characters as women as well, um, that, you know, these women were just too big, too ungainly, too unpredictable uh, and something had to be done. And so, you know, their whole world was torn apart in this way. So, yeah, this it, that's sort of the way that it came together. But yes, that destruction is very much at the heart of the story, however you look at it. I'm interested by the way in which you flesh out these nine maternal figures, if you like, because as you say, they, they were just sort of names, placeholders, sorts of things. And I'm wondering why you went with the kind of, the symbols that you did as sort of brief ways to key into these characters that we don't get in, an enormous amount of time to explore, but you know, they are, you know, they're cooking, they're sharpening their swords, they're doing all these kinds of things that seem to anatomize in some ways sort of many different types of being a mother yeah I thought about that and I also we we know quite a lot about the character uh, Heimdallah and so I looked at his characteristics and thought well he may have inherited those characteristics from his mothers and from different mothers so one of them can see into the future for example uh you know and um one of them is grinding their gold teeth. And I think that Heimdall's teeth were mentioned in something that I read, him having gold teeth. So I like that. So, yeah, I, I've sort of brought those characteristics and given them to the mothers uh, and made them into these into these different characters. And I like the idea that they're kind of sitting around together. Some of them are nodding off and sleeping. Some of them are awake and telling this story. And some of them, in my mind, join in with parts of the story course I'm just one voice saying it but um, there there are parts where uh, where it's there's a we where there's a strong we that to me is kind of some of the mothers speaking together um, and I I like the idea that there are lots of different ways to be a mother and that it's not necessary to be a biological mother in order to practice mothering uh, or caring for a child, you know, in the way that we can care for our friends' children, in the way that children can be adopted, in the way that step families exist, and so many other forms of family. I, I like that idea of, yeah, but, uh, you know, in the poem, it can only come in in small ways, but hopefully it's there. It kind of reminds me of that part in Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut, when, um, the uh, the protagonist who has been uh, captured by aliens is trying to explain this human concept of gender as the you know two types of people necessary to produce and raise a child and they go away and they were like I think we found uh, about you know seven to fifteen types of gender we have grandmothers and uh, and siblings and all these kinds of things and I kind of really like that idea of um, playfully putting into question what it is to be a family unit yeah absolutely and the you know the first god the first being in Norse mythology is described as being both male and female both man and woman uh, and being able to produce children from themselves um, and I felt that was an important uh, I felt that was really important and actually something that seems to be kind of lost in the Norse stories that we tell. Uh, and Ymir is often called he, but in fact, it's they. Uh, and so that felt important to me. And I thought, well, if that's the giant's origin story, then you know, why would they 
place importance on mother or father or mother and father the caring process is the thing that is the is the focus of the narrative rather than how that how that's framed in terms of like your particular social position because they have no particular social position yeah. they are kind of in this sort of edgeland yeah exactly space yeah um i want to talk about um how you tackle the notion of what it is to be a god especially in the norse canon where the gods are very anthropomorphized and usually not in a particularly aspirational way because you talk a lot about you know the child says i don't want to be a god and god godliness is about you know self-creation it's just an exaggeration of storytelling i'm just wondering if you could talk a bit about what you what your thoughts were yeah i've used god to to mean power really for for a, a group of people in this poem to to give themselves power um although you know there's this character buri in in the story who comes out of the ice and you know that's straight from the norse origin story so he is supposedly the first god but i i like the idea that you know the the giants brought him out of the ice and then he lives among them uh and it's only later that his grandson says uh, you know actually we're we're gods and and you're giants this is my version of the story but i think it's very interesting to to think about storytelling and naming and power uh and so i use that word god to do that um and i thought you know what if we had these characters who were giants who were the kind of founding figures uh, what if we had giant women as our founding figures? Things would be different from from what they are. It's it's about who gets to tell the stories and who gets given certain names. Miriam, thank you. Thank you so much. That's it for this week on Bedtime Stories for the End of the World. You can catch up on all our episodes, find out more about our writers and much more besides on our website, endoftheworldpodcast.com. To keep up with all our work, you can follow at Goodbye World Pod on Twitter. You can bother me personally at Eleanor K. Penny. This project is kindly supported by the Arts Council England and the infinite patience of the good folks at Spread the Word. It is produced by Tom McAndrew and from all of us, sweet dreams and thanks for listening. <laughs>